So we're doing this sermon series called Unfolding Grace, which is the longest sermon series I've ever done. It's going to be 40 weeks long when we're uh, complete uh, with the message and uh, with the series. And so uh, the question I I would think uh, would be on at least some people's mind is not why necessarily just why the series, but why the timing of the series? Why now? And I think uh, we really don't need to look uh, any further there than where our culture is uh, today uh, to, to kind of answer the, the why we're doing this series uh, for 40 weeks as a church. I mean, as, as a culture, we've experienced the global pandemic, something none of us saw coming. Uh, we've experienced political upheaval, uh, racial and cultural unrest, and a new moral revolution that's upon us. Like in the past year, our way of life has been turned upside down to the point that uh, the future of our own country is in question. And the sources that many people, most people, in fact, look to uh, for security, for direction, information, for truth, well, they're all suspect. So who can you trust? And guys, as a result... uh, of all of this, uh, it's kind of left people, even believers, uh, divided and distracted and discouraged and confused and angry and scared. Like, does any of that sound like you? So what, what should we do about it? What, like, really, what can we do about it? You're only one person with one vote. How can you make a difference? And so... Why are we doing this series now? Let me make it very clear. This is why. Because of where our world is, this is why we're doing this study. This is why we're spending 40 weeks as a church reading through the Bible together. Because God's Word makes sense of our current situation. I mean, if you just look at the speed at which all these changes are hitting, you have to conclude as a believer that there's more here going on than just political maneuvering, more than just big tech, more than just like like a cultural lobbyist. Like the Bible gives us true answers of why the world is the way it is. It doesn't simply give us spin like a politician or a newscaster. No, the Bible gives us the answer, and the Bible also gives us hope. It gives us real hope, not just platitudes, not just everything is going to work out okay. The Bible doesn't say it's all going to work out okay. Like the Bible tells the truth about our culture, and it tells us the truth about the future. But it gives us hope, real hope, in times where like, there seems like there's no hope, when there's no solid ground, when there's no firmness. And then another reason we're doing this series now is because the scripture tells us how we are supposed to stand firm in a world that has fallen. In fact, all all of those themes run through the book of Judges. Like Judges records, as we saw last week, records a time in the history of the nation of Israel, a time of moral insanity. And in the first 16 chapters of Judges, it gives us a historical overview of that time. And it follows a, a real standard kind of pattern, a, a cycle. In fact, here it is. 
It's a cycle of sin and God's judgment in the book of Judges. Like it starts, starts well, chapter one, Israel serves the Lord. Like everything is going great in chapter one. Like chapter one looks like the end of Joshua. Chapter one looks like the book of, the end of the book of Deuteronomy. The people are faithful. They're serving the Lord until you get to chapter two. And then Israel rejects the Lord. Like they walk away. They commit idolatry. What the scripture refers to as spiritual adultery against God. And as a result of their sin, God does what he promised that he would do. God always keeps his promises, even the ones we wished he wouldn't. He's always going to judge sin, and that's what he does. He judges the nation of Israel, and they are enslaved. They're in bondage again, like back in Egypt. And so they can't take, it, take any more of this. They finally get to a point where they recognize what they've done has cost them dearly, and they cry out to the Lord. And one pattern we've seen throughout the scripture so far is that when we cry out to the Lord, he hears and he responds. And so God raises up a judge. Don't think of a guy in a black robe, but think more of a warrior or a general, someone to lead the people, someone to go to battle for them and to fight against their enemies. And as a result, Israel is delivered from enslavery, from bondage. And because of this, because of what God has done, once again, Israel serves the Lord. And it's all good, right? Until it's not. And they do it all over again and again and again. It's like what it says in Proverbs 26, 11, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Like, you ever, have you ever seen a dog do that? It's truly disgusting. Like a dog throws up and then it looks at it and I, I, I don't know what it's going through its dog brain. Wow, that looks pretty good. I wonder what that tastes like. Well, you know what it tastes like. It just came out of your mouth, right? But it eats it again. But guys, that's what Israel is doing here. Like this cycle repeats again and again and again all through those first 16 chapters until we get to Judges 17. And in Judges 17 through 21, uh, which, which is what you'll read this week, uh, there's a departure from this uh, earlier narrative structure of the book of Judges. Like the, the author of the book of Judges gives us a ground level view of what life was like for the nation of Israel during this time. Like they zero in on two events that give us like an idea of exactly the kind of activity that resulted in this cycle of sin and judgment. They give us two case studies a kind of spiritual condition that God had to rescue his people from. And this is what life looks like when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And so chapters 17 and 18 tell us a story of religious confusion. And then chapters 19 to 21 tell us a story that highlights the moral confusion of the people. And these two things, religious confusion and moral confusion, they go hand in hand. Like you rarely, if ever, see one without the other. Like religious confusion results in moral confusion, which results in more religious confusion, which results in more moral confusion. Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off 
restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. And guys, what you see in the book of Judges is people rejecting or not giving heed to God's vision of what they're supposed to be. And they cast off restraint and do what is right in their own eyes. You see, we believe what we want to believe so we can do what we want to do. I've said it over and over and over again over the years. We believe what we want to believe so we can do what we want to do. You have a lifestyle or an idea or a choice that you want to make, but if you hold to what you say you hold to, you can't go after that. And so you kind of redefine the terms of your faith. You redefine God. And that's what Israel is doing in this, the darkest chapter of their history. You know, I read this and I think of uh, the, the, the book, The Fellowship of the Ring by J.R.R. Tolkien. When Frodo is finally getting an idea of the world that he has to kind of live in and the experience that he has to kind of walk through with battles and wars and orcs and the rise of Sauron, this evil figure. And he says this to Gandalf. He says, I wish it need not have happened in my time. Do you ever feel that way? Like, can you relate to that? Pandemic, (laughs) civil unrest, like where our country is. Man, I wish, like, I wish Jesus had just called me home before all this happened. Like I, wish this, like, I wish I could return to a simpler time. And yet Gandalf replies to Frodo, so do I and so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And so guys, you can either decide to do what is right, right? To do what is objectively true, what God has said. You can either decide to obey God, to do what is right, or you can decide to do what is right in your own eyes. You can give in to subjectivity instead of objectivity and just kind of do whatever you want. But you have to choose. You have to choose one or the other. And if you choose to obey God, you have to be all in. Because God doesn't want our half-hearted obedience. He doesn't need a redefinition of the faith. In fact, that's the first story uh, in Judges 17. That's what it teaches us. In verse 1, it says that there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother... The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. Well, thanks, son. Like, this guy's the worst. Hey, mom, you know that, all that money that you had? Like 1,100 pieces of silver? that you called out a curse, like cursed is the one who stole my money. In fact, you even said it in my ear, whether she literally like leaned over and said, cursed is the one, or he just heard it, we don't know, but he says, hey, yeah, yeah, that was me, I stole that. And his mom says, blessed be my son by the Lord. Well, that was quick. Like no consequences, no, what were you thinking, you know? 
you know, no, no, like, son, like, what, like, happened in your heart that would allow you to take a step where you're robbing your own mom? Like, what is going on with you? There's no consequences. And there seems to be, on the man's part, no repentance at all. He just knows he's been caught. He doesn't want to be the recipient of that curse. And so her forgiveness is really quick because she's a classic enabler. She's this kind of excusing mom. You know, she just wants to move on from here. She's the kind of mom who would say, you know, Micah is a good boy. He's a good boy. He just sometimes makes some mistakes. Micah's a good boy. He's a good boy. He just got, he just got involved with the wrong crowd. Micah's a really good boy. It's just that sometimes he robs me. <laughs> right? That's what's going on. It says, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. Like Micah's mother shows her gratitude toward Yahweh by breaking the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. God, you're so good to give me this money back. You know what I'm going to do? Disregard all the things that you've said and create a carved image and let that be the focus of my worship. Like guys, when you read chapter 17, you read the story of two people who are absolutely clueless about what it means to be an Israelite. Absolutely clueless about who Yahweh is and what he expects them to do. Verse four, so when... He restored the money to his mother. His mother took 200 pieces of silver. Remember, they're 1,100, not 200. She takes 200 pieces of silver and gave them to a silversmith who made it into a carved image and metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. Like, I dedicate all of this, all 1,100 pieces of silver to the Lord. Here are 200. I'm just going to hold on to these other 900. Like she holds back. She's hedging her bets, right? Like she holds the bulk of the silver for herself, kind of as an insurance policy, just in case this whole, you know, Yahweh thing doesn't work out, just in case God doesn't deliver. Verse 5 And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod, and household gods, and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. Like he invents a whole new religion, a whole new denomination of Judaism that looks nothing like Judaism. Like I said, these people are clueless about what it means to follow God. They are worshiping Yahweh in name only. Guys, when we attempt to worship God on our own terms, we really aren't worshiping God at all. Like we're, we're worshiping the God that we have constructed. We have ideas or concepts about God, attributes of God that we like, that we admire, and we focus our attention on those because we find them acceptable, we find them palatable, culture understands those and likes those, and we neglect the things that we don't like, that culture doesn't accept. And that's the essence of idolatry. Not allowing God to be God. Worshiping God on our own terms. It was A.W. Tozer who said that the essence of idolatry 
is to entertain a thought about God that is unworthy of him. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're entertaining thoughts that are moving into actions that have become a new religion. What is going on? Well, we know what's going on because in the next verse it describes it. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I mean, this is not the way it's supposed to be because the, the faith of the people of Israel, like our faith, is a revealed faith. Like God is the one who has revealed himself to us in the presence of his son and through his word. Like he's the one who calls the shot. We don't, we don't get to simply discover him in our experience. God is the, ones, uh, is the one who sets up the boundaries of how he's going to be approached and how he's going to be worshiped. Like when I was reading this in my Bible, I just wrote in the margin, just for these first six verses, like this story is just so wrong at so many levels. Like each verse, these people are so messed up in each verse, like they're just so off course and it builds up to this point where they have established a new religion and it just gets worse from here. Like if you continue to read the story, this Levite shows up from Bethlehem. He's a traveling Levite, which there's not supposed to be as such a thing as a traveling Levite. Like they have assigned territories that they go to and they act as Levites and priests in that area. But he shows up in the hill country of Ephraim and Micah sees an opportunity. Like this is a Levite, one of God's chosen people, the one who works in the temple and makes the sacrifices. And so he, he trades his son in for this Levite and kind of trades up because I'm sure it's way more impressive, right? Now he has a house Levite. He has his own priest for the house of Micah. And then verse 13 shows us the whole goal of Micah's new religion when he says, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Man, I know things are gonna go well now because I got myself a Levite. Like, that's a pretty big deal. Like, I have the shrine. Like, I have the, the priestly garments. I have, I have all of that. I have those two idols that my mom paid for. I mean, this is really good. I'm going to add in some household gods. I got myself a Levite. Woo! Like, this is good. Now I know that God is obligated to prosper me and to bless me. Now I know that the Lord owes me something because I have a Levite. You know, one scholar uh, writing on this passage really captured what was so wrong with this story when he writes this. He says, the purpose of Micah's religious efforts is to get access to God so that he can get God to do what he wants. However, the goal of true faith is to give God access to your heart so that he can get you to do what he wants. And so this is just a complete reversal. It's upside down. And you wonder, what is going on here? And in the very next verse, it tells you, in those days there was no king in Israel. And so as if the story wasn't bad enough, it goes from bad to worse when some 
emissaries from the tribe of Dan show up in that area and they notice that this guy's a Levite and he has his own little mini temple and they inquire of him and they like what he says. So when they come back through with their army, they just take him with them. They kidnap him. They take the gods. They take the shrine. They take the the holy vestments. They take everything. At first, this Levite protests and says, no, what, what are you doing? And then they say, well, hey, you can be a priest for one household or you can be the priest of a tribe of Israel. And this Levite, thinking of himself and thinking only in terms of like selfishness, thinks, hey, you know what? That's quite a promotion. Like I get to be the priest over the entire tribe of Dan. That's a big deal. And the story ends this way. There's one final really depressing twist in the story because up to this point we haven't been told the name of the Levite and then we read it in verse 30 of chapter 18 it says and the people of Dan set up a carved image for themselves and Jonathan the son of Gershom the son of Moses and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land Guys, if, as if this story wasn't depressing enough, this is, this is Moses' grandson who was doing this. Which, of course, <laughs> proves the old adage, God has no grandchildren. Like each person today, just like each person in that era, had to come to a point where they came face to face with God and submitted their lives to him and said, I believe and I will follow you. Like my salvation does not guarantee the salvation of my children or of my grandchildren. Like each one of them needs to come to grips with what they're gonna do with God, whether they're gonna follow him or obey him. You know, a scholar, uh, D.A. Carson has said, one generation knows the gospel. The next generation assumes it. And the third generation loses it. It's like when I was a youth pastor back in the day, like I knew just from all the research that seven out of 10 evangelical kids who graduated from the average student ministry were inactive in their faith one year after graduation. Now, over a five-year period, half of those came back, but you were still only seeing half of the kids raised in Christian families often who grew up in youth ministries going on to follow God. And guys, that was 20 years ago. It's only gotten worse since then. How does that happen? Well, guys, it happens when God is only useful in life to get us out of trouble when life is out of control. And that's when, like Israel, that's when we cry out to the Lord. Like this happens when God is only useful if I want some sort of blessing from him. God, prosper me. And then, man, I really start praying. And so that's a messy story. It only gets worse from here. Chapter 19, verse one kicks off with these words. In those days... When there was no king in Israel, and up to this point, if you're reading this, you know, oh, it's about to get messy. 
Like you, you know, you've, you've called on to the, the, the cadence of the writer of the book of Judges that whenever he introduces something like that, you know it's going to get really, really bad, and it does. But even as much as you're expecting, you're not ready for how bad it actually gets because this begins the most detestable story in the book of Judges. And it begins, of course, once again with a, a different Levite. This is a Levite who's traveling looking for his concubine. You know, think not wife, but sex slave. He's looking for his concubine who has left him. He waits about four months. He goes and gets her. He persuades her dad to give his daughter back to him. And then they head off. They end up at a town uh, that is held by part of the tribe of Benjamin. Like they're sleeping at somebody's house that night and the knock comes on the door and it's the men from the city and they say, the man, the traveler you have with you, send him out to us so that we can have sex with him. I mean, it sounds just like the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's being replayed, but it's not Sodom. It's Israel. And just like in Sodom and Gomorrah, the men in the house come up with a great idea Let's send out the women to be raped by these men. And that'll work out. Like one man, he's actually going to send his own virgin daughter. But instead, this Levite sends his concubine. And the story, it's so vile. Like she is raped by this crowd all night until it kills her. And in the morning, he finds her laying with her hand on the threshold of the door, looking for hope when there is no hope looking for somebody to rescue her. And this Levite just looks at her and says, get up. He speaks to her like you would speak to a dog. And then when he realizes she's dead, what does he do? He does something even more vile. He cuts her into 12 pieces and sends those 12 pieces of this woman to the tribes of Israel. And all of Israel is just shocked and horrified. Like he doesn't, he doesn't repent for his part, his key role in all of this. There's no remorse in his heart. He instead combats the wickedness that they were, that was committed on this woman with even more wickedness. And then Israel comes together as one nation for the first time since chapter three. And they have this wicked plan of how they're gonna get like get back on the tribe of Benjamin, combating sin with more sin. And they go to battle with Benjamin and they obliterate the entire tribe, all the men except 600, but all the women and all the children. And then they kind of have, they kind of have an aha moment and they think, oh my goodness, now Israel has 11 tribes. Like we don't have 12 anymore. Now there's, now we're down one because we have sworn this rash oath that we would not give any of our daughters to a Benjaminite. So like what is going to go on? And so they come up with an even more twisted, messed up plan. But in the midst of this, they say to the Lord, oh Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? Like God, what are you doing? Why didn't you stop us? Like they blame God for what they have done. Why has this happened? Well, you, 
You never at one, one time prayed, God, should we go to battle against these people? You just, you just wanted to know which tribe should get the first killing in. That's all you cared about. Like this story is a vivid picture of the kind of world you get if everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Like no one in this story is a good guy. None of them. Like no one is righteous at all. They are all acting like functional atheists and pagans. And so the book concludes, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see, the book of Judges shows us that though we are the problem, we cannot be the solution. We need a solution outside of us. We need somebody to rescue us that's not part of us. And I, I just wrote in my notes, like, why, why is this continuing to, to be repeated? Over and over, the writer of Judges is saying, in those days, there was no king. Why did Israel need a king? They actually had a king, Right? Like they had a, had a coronation service where they said that Yahweh was their king and yet now they're out of control because they don't have an earthly king because of their unbelief. See, they, they needed a king because they needed someone to rally around, someone to protect them, someone, someone to represent them, someone to hold them accountable and because they didn't do well with freedom and yet they had all of that in God but did not want him. See, there's two authors who wrote the book of Judges. There's the human historian and there's the Holy Spirit. The human historian, probably writing around the time of the reign of King David, is dropping these hints that, you know what, these people were so messed up because they didn't have somebody like David. And yet, in saying that, he's really betting on a losing horse because David is not the solution, Solomon is not the answer. None of the earthly kings of Israel were the ones who could get them to follow God completely generation after generation. So the human author is betting on a losing horse, but the Holy Spirit is using this to foreshadow the coming king of kings. And so, like at the end of my reading of the book of Judges, I just wrote, where is the hope in the time of the judges. Like I know they have hope in the future. God's going to send a king. I know they have hope in a Messiah that God has promised. But that's always out there. Where is the hope right here and right now in the era of the judges? And then I realized that what's in the very, very next words. Ruth chapter 1 verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled. And you don't have a story about a cycle of sin and judgment. Instead, you have a story about a cycle of God's revelation and continued faithfulness. Like the more Ruth learns about the things of God, the more she obeys and steps into them. And then you have this character, Obed, who is faithful to God to the most minute of details following the law of God. Like the presence of chaos in the time of the judges does not mean the absence of God any more than it means the absence of God now. Just ask Ruth. Just ask Obed. They took their stand. 
They had a king. I'm sure they could have said, I wished we had not been born during this time, but that wasn't up to them. It was only up to them to do what, like what they should do in the midst of the time that they were given. Like just ask Ruth. Just ask Joseph. Alone in Egypt and yet faithful to God. Just ask Elijah hiding in a cave thinking he's the only one who has not bowed the knee to Baal. And God says, man, I have hundreds of people you haven't even met yet who are faithful to me. Just ask Daniel cast into a lion's den and rescued by God because he would not stop praying in the midst of a pagan world to the one true God. Just ask Malachi, who at the end of his book said that those who feared the Lord gathered together and spoke to one another and God heard and a book of remembrance was written in their name, like in God's presence of those who feared the Lord and did not compromise. You see, guys, faithfulness leaves a mark that time cannot erase. It does. We remember those names. We name our kids those names because faithfulness leaves a mark that time cannot erase. Here is Ruth's mark. Verse 18 of chapter four. Now these are the generation of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abimadab. Abimadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz, by the way, by Rahab, who was faithful. Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse by Ruth. And Jesse fathered David who is the king. Like you read, by the way, these exact words about a thousand years later in Malachi, I'm sorry, not in Malachi, but in Matthew chapter one because this is the genealogy of the promised one because we all need a king and this is the genealogy of the one true king who came. Let's pray. Father, I do pray uh, God, that you would help us recognize that uh, we do need a king. And we need the king that Israel rejected during the time of Judges. We need you as the ruler and sovereign over our lives. We need to hear your words and obey them. We need to trust you. God, in the midst of a world that seems to be spinning out of control, Lord, we need to take a stand like Ruth like Obed, like Daniel, like Joseph, like Malachi, like Elijah, like Moses, like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, like Paul, like Peter, like John. Lord, we need to stand firm and believe you. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.